0: As we come to think about God's word, let's ask him to give us understanding. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your daily care of us and your daily provision uh, for us. Our Father, we thank you for the reduction in new cases. Uh, We thank you for the diligence of our authorities in seeking to curtail this infection. Uh, We thank you that we can come together over technology and we thank you for your word, that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help me to teach it truthfully and clearly now and help us all to understand it and in your mercy to be those who put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may have noticed that as well as talking about how many have been infected with COVID-19, how many are in ICU, how many have died because of this virus. People are increasingly talking about the economy, about the impact on the economy of the government's response uh, to the virus. You know, they talk of numbers out of work, the effect on trade, the government's stimulus, what's happening on the stock market, the prophesied impact on property prices. As a society, as individuals, we can't avoid the impact of COVID-19 on our finances. And we can't avoid talk about the impact of COVID-19 on our finances. So this morning, I want to contribute to that talk to feed into the discussion, into your thinking as believers, two aspects of Jesus' teaching on money. His call not to be anxious in Luke 12. And he's called to his followers to be spiritually shrewd in how they use the money and property entrusted to them in Luke 16. I want to look at both because we don't experience this pandemic uniformly and the impact on our personal finances is not the same for everyone. For some of us, this pandemic has meant loss of work or reduced hours and income, less return on investments. For others, there has so far been little change and perhaps for some they found their services in increased demand. So we need to consider something of the breadth of Jesus' teaching. But we are going to start with Luke 12 because whatever our current circumstances, even if we're doing well, there is a background anxiety about what will happen. And so it will be helpful to have your Bibles open as we look at these passages And remember to test all things. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Jesus has just been teaching about the folly of greed, of thinking your life is measured by your possessions. But our following of Jesus can just as much be hampered by our anxiety about our material needs, the things money can buy, food, clothing, shelter. So Jesus gets his main point out there at the beginning, do not be anxious. And in case they and we miss the point, he names anxiety again in verses 25 to 26 and repeats the sentiment in verse 29, do not be worried. Don't be anxious about money, about material things. And we all agree with that, don't we? Being anxious about money is miserable. It's the kind of thing that keeps you awake at night and weighs on your mind through the day. How much money do I have left? How long will it last? What are the bills coming in? Can I pay them? What will happen if I can't? Will I have to move? What about the kids and their schooling? Oh, what can I do to get money? Should I try this or should I try that? When we are anxious, those questions swirl about in our minds, exhaust us, sometimes paralyze us. We know that it is good not to be anxious about money. But not being anxious is harder than just not wanting to be anxious. Some of you are probably experiencing that. The bills are coming in and you've lost your work and the job keeper payments are not flowing yet. Oh, it's hard to see how you could get another job, even though you're looking hard. Or you've retired and you see your super going down, property rentals falling away, interest non-existent. And you think you have good reason to be anxious. Who else will look after you? Who will pay your bills? Jesus' first hearers also had good reason to be anxious. Many of them were day labourers. If they did not work that day, they might not eat that day. Others, many, were tenant farmers. And a bad year would mean that they had nothing to feed their families or so next year. And they would have to go further into debt to feed their families, pay their rent, pay their taxes to the Romans. There was no food security for them, let alone income security. And to them and to us, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Now, notice he doesn't say don't work or don't apply for work or don't budget. He says don't be anxious about those basic material needs that sustain and protect our lives, food and clothing. But why? Why not be anxious Because, let's face it, to think you're going to run out of food is anxiety-provoking. To think that you will have nowhere to stay, be out on the street, is anxiety-provoking. Why don't be anxious? Well, in verses 23 to 28, Jesus gives his followers reasons not to be anxious. For life, he says, is more than food and the body more than clothing. So, verse 23: Firstly, an argument from the greater to the lesser. God has already given you a life and trusted you with a body. You and your anxiety were not the source of these, and they won't be the sustaining of these. They come from God. And verse 24: God knows how to sustain life, and He can do it without all the normal props you think your life depends on. <coughs> Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Look at the ravens, he says, a very common bird. God routinely keeps them in their vast numbers. He keeps them fed without any of the things you think life depends on. Sowing, reaping, storehouses to keep the grain from one harvest to the next. Now this is not an argument against sowing and reaping the normal way God feeds us. Rather it's an argument for God's great capacity. He's not dependent in his provision for us on the means we normally depend on. And so we should never confuse the means God normally uses to provide for us, like work, with his capacity, his unlimited capacity to provide for us. And remember, he cares about you much more than the ravens whom he regularly, consistently feeds. And where God has a proven track record in his provision for the teeming life of creation... Your anxiety, says our Lord Jesus, has no demonstrable usefulness. Verse 25, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Your anxiety didn't give you life. It can't increase your life even a little. It doesn't originate or sustain. So, why would you invest so much energy into being anxious? It's ineffective, useless in giving you what you're worrying about life. But God is overflowing in his ability to provide. When it comes to life, say to clothing, the life that he's created, his is a profligate, almost wasteful generosity. Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? How much more? Your need is not going to exhaust God's ability to provide. If you are his, one of Jesus' disciples, and these words are addressed to Jesus' disciples, well, your God can keep and provide for you. Jesus puts his finger on the issue with our anxiety about material things, little faith, doubt about God's care, doubt about God's ability. Now hear what Jesus says, I think we don't often like to admit that behind our anxiety about material things is a lack of trust in our God. But Jesus names it, little faith. Yet how inappropriate is little faith in God's love and power for people who say they believe the gospel, that Christ has died for their sins and been raised to new life, We believe God loves us so much that he gave his son for us to give us eternal life even while we were God's enemies, sinners. Now why would we ever stop thinking he cares for us? Having been loved like that, why would we ever stop thinking he cares for us, especially now we have turned back to follow Jesus? We believe God can raise the dead. Bring life when all the normal means of life have vanished. Bring life where there is no hope of life. So how can we doubt his power to sustain life? If you're anxious, think that through. Think through your confession of the truth of the gospel and how it undermines and confronts your anxious thoughts. Feel the truth of the gospel, the love and the power of God for you and rebuke your little faith. Then, knowing that Jesus has brought us into a relationship with the living almighty God where we can call him our Father, then freed from anxiety, hear Jesus say we should give our minds and energies to a better pursuit than food and clothing, the material provisions that sustain our lives. Verse 29, do not seek. What you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. The nations, and this speaks here of those who are ignorant of God, make those things, food and clothing, their pursuit. We see that all around us. The pursuit of material things, the attempt to make ourselves secure by what we own, that anxiety about whether we have enough. Those things characterise our society, a society that does not know God. And God, who gave us our bodies, he of course knows we need food, clothing and shelter. Jesus' teaching about anxiety doesn't deny that need. But it does say that we should have a different focus because we can trust our Father. Our energy, our focus pursuit should be given to God's kingdom, God's reign. For us, that means we should give our energy to following God's risen king, Jesus, and putting into practice what Jesus teaches. To seek the kingdom is to be loyal to the king. And, of course, Jesus' teaching encompasses all of our lives, all of our relationships, how we treat husbands or wives, our parents, our children. But in relation to work and money, it will mean, say, following Jesus will mean, for example, being honest and faithful in all our undertakings, even if it means a cost to us. It means accepting responsibility to provide for ourselves where we can Oh, it means not lying on resumes, not being ashamed of belonging to Jesus in job interviews or in the workplace. Oh, and it means, as we see in verse 33, being generous to the poor because we are committed to loving our neighbours as ourselves. And we can do all this because we are not anxious but trust our Father to provide what he can so easily and generously provide. What matters is living as his child through following Jesus. These will be testing times where we will be tempted to be anxious. So see them as an opportunity to grow in trust of your heavenly father because you trust the Lord Jesus. Trust that he has made you right with God and one of God's family by believing in him. Someone who can rely on the love of the almighty God. And that is true of believers. We are as children. As John says in 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. You know, trusting your heavenly Father is important because anxiety will misdirect you from pursuing what matters, his kingdom. Oh, and trust in our Heavenly Father is important because because it actually honours our God. It shows to all that he is faithful and almighty, the God of steadfast love. Trust stands out in an anxious age and so does the righteous life that it gives rise to, the life that keeps its word and can be generous. And trust at this time will teach your children what is so important for them to know, that our God is the true source of all our blessing. And trust will be vindicated. It has been over and over again in the lives of his people. Some have seen this in our own families over generations and we see it in the saints in history. Like, say, George Mueller feeding the orphans of Bristol. This is a time to learn to trust. But some of us are still getting paid, still drawing our normal wage, still have significant material assets. And so I want to look at a story Jesus told in Luke 16.
1: Now, of course, it's a bit
0: ambitious to look at two passages. Always better to stop, isn't it? Because it's harder than usual to listen to someone on YouTube. But this is the last week I'll be preaching for a while and I don't want to disrupt Clinton and Chris by taking another week. And I think that just as we are tempted to be anxious, so in our society at this time, we will be tempted to make wrong investment decisions with what God has entrusted to us, tempted to store up treasure on earth, to hoard our wealth, to look only to ourselves, to make what we have the source of our security. And so to keep it for ourselves. That's easy to do. And it's easy to think that in doing that, you're doing the right thing. For we're a culture that sees security as storing up treasure on earth, that mandates we do so in compulsory super. But it would be a mistake, a serious one. For according to Jesus, if we put our trust in money if we make make that the source of our security, we will be robbing ourselves eternally. So listen again to this strange story of the dishonest manager. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest steward for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now this is a wild tale where the hero is a self-serving crook. So why did Jesus tell it? Well, it wasn't to commend dishonesty. What the master in the story commends is the manager's shrewdness and and that work can also have the sense of thoughtfulness or or prudence. And I actually think that the best equivalent is probably the Scots term, canny. He was a canny man. He could find the solution in his need, the solution that work would work in his favour. Now, the manager was shrewd because he saw what was coming and he took steps, urgent and decisive steps, to ensure that when the inevitable came, when he lost his managerial job, he would be okay. He would have friends, verse 4, who would give him a welcome into their homes. And nothing, not convention, not the law, held him back from doing what was necessary in the present to ensure are welcome in the future now the sons of light says jesus righteous people well well they're a bit shocked by the sheer audacity of what the manager did and they would have had scruples about changing their bills but worldly people like the dishonest manager know better how this world works and so are better equipped to take the steps needed to ensure their survival in this world but that's just an observation not a commendation. The point Jesus wants his followers to take away is verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Unrighteous wealth, mammon, is the money and the property of this age. Jesus is saying that we should be spiritually shrewd, spiritually canny people. Knowing what is to come, the judgment and the establishment of the kingdom of righteousness, we should use what we have now, the wealth and possessions of this age, which will cease to be, to ensure a welcome then. You see, believers know just like the manager that our present circumstances are going to come to an end and we should act urgently, resolutely, decisively, with what we have, so that when that day comes we will be received into eternal dwellings, have a heavenly home. But how? How do we make friends by means of unrighteous mammon? Well, one way is give to the poor. That's what Jesus spoke of in Luke 12, 22 to 23, where he spoke of storing up treasure in heaven. And at the end of chapter 16. Jesus will tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which, amongst other things, tells us Jesus expects us to listen to what Moses tells us in the law about caring for the poor. But Jesus does speak of friends welcoming us, receiving us then. Now, in part, that's a feature of the parable, for the manager was making future friends for himself. But it's a deliberate feature. So how do you use what you have now to make friends who will welcome us into eternity? Well, it's by supporting the work of the gospel and sustaining and bringing relief to believers. Listen to God's word as it relates how what we do now with what we have affects our future. Uh, We'll speak of Bring a reward on that day. So, Jesus, as he was sending out his disciples with the gospel, said that whoever gave one of his disciples a cup of cold water would not lose his reward. Matthew 10. Then Matthew 25. The picture of the sun separating the sheep from the goats on the judgment day in Matthew 25 is actually about how we treat believers, those whom Jesus calls the least of these brothers of mine and particularly how we treat those who go out with the gospel about whether we provide for them in their need. The sheep used what they had, their time and resources to support and sustain gospel preachers and believers in trial and need. And they were welcomed into eternity. In Philippians Paul says that the gifts the Philippians gave him to support him in his work were not just a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, but would also bear fruit, Philippians 4.17, that increases to their credit. By supporting him in his mission, Paul said the Philippians had become partners in the gospel. They were a business team. They shared in the investment and they would share in the fruit. And the fruit of Paul's labours is believers, those who will dwell in eternal dwellings, eternal friends. Oh, the money given by the churches of Greece and Asia Minor to support the poor believers in Jerusalem is also an example of this spiritual investment, producing thankfulness and praise to God, making eternal friends. We can make eternal friends with the money and property entrusted to us, the unrighteous mammon of this age, by supporting the spread of the gospel, by supporting preachers of the gospel and by giving relief and comfort to Jesus' people in need. And I want you to think about that at this time. You see, it's not just personal finances that are thrown into turmoil at this time. The finances of churches and Christian organisations will also take a hit. Meeting our budget this year was always going to be a stretch and this turmoil won't help it. Uh, So we'll be keeping you informed about how we're going through the year and that, of course, increased level of reporting will be new for us. But we will only be able to sustain our work if you make deliberate investment decisions with what the Lord has entrusted to you. But not just us. The wonderful work of Christian Union and Focus, that is the work of AFES, from which many of you have benefited personally, will take a hit and it will need canny Christians to invest. All groups... Just ask Paul Coleman about the challenge to maintain support for breakaway camps and the good work they do in the lives of young people or speak to James about Tear. The need means this time. We'll not just test those of us who see a reduction in our own income. This time we'll test all of us. Test whether we're serving God or money reveal where we're looking for our security and hope, whom we are taking direction from in the use of what we're given. See, I think in our comfort we have thought that we could serve both God and money, lay up treasure on earth and lay up treasure in heaven. Now, as has always been the case, you will have to choose. Of course, it does make me wonder if I've put as much into eternity as I put into my super. That's a frightening question, isn't it? But actually, I guess super could be a model of spiritual investing for those of us with regular incomes. You know, a regular investment, starting early, continuing over the years, compounding in supporting the work of the gospel. Wouldn't that be good? It is important at this time that we are shrewd spiritual investors, canny Christians who use what we have now to make eternal friends. Important not just for the beneficiaries, churches and Christian organisations, important for you. Because Jesus says in verses 10 to 12 that what we do with our money is a kind of test (coughs) to see if we are ready, fit for an eternal inheritance. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is to come, which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So on the one hand there is the very little, the unrighteous wealth, what is another's. On the other there is the much, the true riches, what is your own. How you use the first determines whether you are fit for the second. Very little, unrighteous wealth, what is another's are all ways of describing the wealth of this age. It's little because it can't compare with the wealth of the age to come. It is the unrighteous mammon because it's marked with the character of this age. It is what belongs to another because you can't keep it. The money or property you have belonged to someone else before and it will pass from you to another when you die. What we will inherit in the new heaven and earth in the age to come is the much beyond all our needs, is true genuine riches because they're untarnished by sin and enduring and they will be our own because we will enjoy them forever. Not being faithful in the wealth of this age, not using it to make eternal friends, not using it according to God's will, will disqualify you from receiving true wealth. The wealth of the age to come because it will show you are an idolater, that you have put your trust in and serve money and not the living God. The service of money and the service of God, our Lord says, are mutually exclusive. So what you do with your money now is important. It's the test of whom you serve, of whether you will serve God by using what he has entrusted to you to do his will. And now that will mean providing for your family, giving to the poor, paying your taxes, but doing all those things in the light of judgment and the revealing of the kingdom in glory when Jesus returns. And so serving God with your money will also mean making friends who will give you a welcome into eternity. Supporting the work of those who preach and teach the gospel and sustaining the well-being of Christian communities. Well, everyone's talking about finances, about money at this time and that will keep on and the news, good or bad, about the economy will keep coming. But for believers listening to Jesus, trusting him, this is a time not to be anxious but to seek his kingdom, to make your focus living his way, honouring him as your Lord in all your decisions and choices. And it's a time to show that you are a spiritually shrewd investor, a canny Christian who, knowing what is to come, does what it takes now with what you have to ensure that there will be those who welcome you into eternity. Find the time to read over the words of your Lord that we've looked at today, Luke 12 and Luke 16, and ask yourself, how am I going? Am I anxious or trusting? And if you think you're anxious, ask the Lord for the help to trust him as he deserves. Oh, ask yourself, is doing his will my first priority because I can trust him to provide for me? Oh, and and does the way I'm using my money show faithfulness in little so that I will be worthy of true riches? Take the time to review your investment strategy in the light of gospel reality and be or become a canny Christian, a shrewd spiritual investor, confident of many friends to receive you into glory. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in a world where we are preoccupied uh, with the wealth of this age, where it dominates our conversation, our thinking, the planning of those we live amongst, in a world where it's easy uh, to become anxious, uh, fearful when we see what is happening to the economy, uh, we pray in your grace that we would be true followers of Jesus, people who know themselves to be your children because we have trusted your son, the Lord Jesus. And being his followers, we pray that we wouldn't be anxious but be freed to seek his kingdom, freed to pursue doing his will. And we pray, gracious Father, in your mercy that you would so work in our hearts that we would hear Jesus and have the privilege of being shrewd spiritual investors, acting now with what you've entrusted to us,
1: so we are
0: sure of a welcome then. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.